Well, in JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another installment of JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Today, I am joined by Thad Domina and Jay Carter, both of the University of North Carolina's at Chapel Hill's School of Education. Welcome to the show. Really happy to have you here. We're going to discuss a fascinating paper. You are two of several co-authors on a paper entitled The Kids on the Bus, The Academic Consequences of Diversity-Driven School Reassignments. The other authors on this team are Devin Carlson, Matthew Leonard, Andrew McEachin, and Rachel Pereira. And also, I should say, congratulations are in order. This paper received the Vernon Memorial Award from JPAM. This award was created many years ago, in fact, in 1985 for Raymond Vernon. And the award is funded by John Wiley and Sons. And this award is really designed to highlight the highest quality policy relevant work and also to memorialize Raymond Vernon's career, who, among other things, was one of the first people to use quantitative analyses of stock market data using computers. He was a long-term, long-time faculty member at Harvard University's Business School, as well as the Kennedy School of Government. And of course, he was the founding editor of the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. So we make it a point to interview the authors of the award-winning paper every year, and we're continuing that tradition here. So congratulations on the award. Thanks. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge honor. Thank you. And you didn't mention about Raymond Vernon, which is the most exciting part, that he helped to invent the peanut M&M, which is amazing. That is true. He was a very talented guy with many diverse talents and accomplishments. And you can read about his bio on the, the JPAM website. Uh, he really was a, uh, a fascinating figure in public policy. So this is really great recognition of the important work that you and your team are doing on the always timely and always contentious issue of school desegregation. Now, your paper studies the impacts of a desegregation program that was enacted in Wake County, North Carolina in the early 2000s. And I'm curious, how did the project come about? Uh, what motivated the study? Well, it's a, it's a long story, I guess. And, it, you know, in a certain sense, you can go, you could tell the story going all the way back to high school. In the early 90s, I went to um, Omaha Central High School and I rode the bus to this diverse high school right in the edge of downtown Omaha, Nebraska. And I got interested in school desegregation there, thinking about, about the history of, of desegregation in Omaha. And I remember, you know, in the news, reading about Charlotte, reading, reading about Wake County as two places that were really, that were at that time, kind of in the throes of, of that moment's battles around school desegregation. So I remember following um, Wake County through the 2000s and the 2010s, just from a distance when it showed up in the newspaper and being interested in it. And so when I landed at UNC in 2015, Wake uh, and school assignment was very much on my radar. I remember talking about it with uh, our co-author, Andrew McCacken. And Andrew is one of these guys who really knows everybody. He introduced me to Matt Leonard, who is also a co-author, uh, who was at the time working at Wake County as a part of Harvard's Strategic Data Partnership. And Andrew and Matt and Devin, you know, this all gets long and involved. Um, another co-author uh, had already started doing some work with the district around uh, school reassignment. 
And so they looped me into these conversations. And we were really just in the right place at the right time where we were asking questions that people at the district were also asking. And it was the moment at which, you know, the politics of 2010, we'll go talk about that in, in a bit, uh, had sort of died down. I think the district had a sense that segregation within the district was beginning to creep up and there were some worries about equity. And so we came along at the moment when they were willing to kind of ask uh, hard questions and open the books. And uh, that's how the partnership was born. Yeah, that's so important to have uh, good uh, partnerships with school systems, schools, school districts that have the data and also have the, the legitimate interest to find out the answer to these important questions. It took a certain amount of courage on the district's part. Oh, for sure. Right. Because you don't know what you're going to find and you want to be you know, honest and, and truthful to the data. And so speaking of what you find, you focus on students' educational outcomes in the longer term, namely test scores and suspensions. What's the high-level overview of your results? What do you find uh, in terms of the impact of this policy on student outcomes? We kind of find nothing. And I think that's a good thing. It's a popular assumption is probably that moving students around is really disruptive for students' academic performance. And we just don't find any of that. In fact, we find slight positive effects for reassigned students on math achievement, null effects elsewhere on like reading achievements, suspensions, and absenteeism. But again, I think that's a, a good null. And this is part of a, a longstanding political and policy concern in public education. It, it dates back a long time, at least back to the Brown versus Board decision. What did we know prior to your study about the impacts of desegregation? And, and how does your work complement uh, and expand on, on that existing knowledge base? So I think the most directly relevant body of research is work that studied the effects of federal desegregation orders. So, you know, I don't know how much history folks need, but Brown is in 1954, and not a whole lot happened to desegregate schools through the 50s and most of the 60s until the federal government started to uh, enforce desegregation orders um, going around from district to district and saying, this situation that you have here violates Brown um, and you need to have a remedy. Those desegregation orders really dismantled Jim Crow schooling in the South and also in the North. And there's a big body of literature. You know, I'd say Rucker Johnson's work is, is the most, uh, the best known and really puts a pin on the results from, from that, that body of literature. It all pretty consistently demonstrates that desegregation, that federal enforcement of desegregation had really big, positive, long-term consequences for black people who were young at the time of desegregation, educational outcomes, um, career outcomes, um, jo uh, yeah, job market, uh, marriage, exposure to the criminal, criminal justice system, all kinds of really encouraging findings. And it shows very little evidence of, of sort of offsetting negative consequences for white youth. So that's the body of literature that I think we build on the most. And I think that there, I mean, it's a really exciting, it's important literature, I think. And I think it has two important shortcomings that we're, that we're trying to address. The first is the treatment under study there uh, is the treatment in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. It's a historical treatment, and it's kind of a big treatment, right? It's, it's dismantling Jim Crow education. It doesn't speak to what we see as sort of more modest but really important um, incremental desegregative, uh, desegregative efforts to, uh, that, 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 that continue into the contemporary era, right? So once you've broken Jim Crow, uh, you still need to keep working at it to maintain desegregated schools. And we don't know much about that, that current work. 
And then the second part is that thing, school desegregation, that gets studied in, in, in Rutgers' work and others, is actually many things, right? It's changing the way resources are distributed across schools. It's building new schools. It's magnets. It's, it's controlled student choice. And it's the thing that everybody worries about, um, and it's the focus of literature, reassigning kids from one school to another. And so we wanted to study that thing, the thing that everybody, that's really controversial at the center of, the, of controversies about school desegregation, um, the effects of being moved from one school to another in order to create more diverse schools. And I think you're, you're exactly right that so much of that existing literature is just analyzing sort of a, a different scope of policy in a, in a pretty different context. The, the world was in a different place back when those policies were being enacted. So related to that, then, those policies that were enacted 30, 40, 50 years ago, there's still some segregation today, right? So it, it didn't remove all forms of segregation. And so can you tell us a little bit like how, uh, how do schools get and remain segregated today, especially in the North Carolina context that you're studying? Yeah, so Wake County is a big countywide school district. It's a bit more typical in the South than other places in the country. Uh, and by big, I mean like 800 some odd square miles. And so, yeah, in the mid 70s, was a merger of predominantly black Raleigh City schools and predominantly white Wake County schools to make what we have today as Wake County public school system. So Wake County was never actually under a desegregation order, but they kind of did this to avoid going to court, to avoid having the like Title VI complaints. So while in other parts of the country, segregation happens a lot because of the way district boundaries are drawn, here it's more about kind of within-county residential segregation and then large geographic area doing some like physical separation of people. And then that gets reflected in kind of your between-school segregation to bigger or smaller extents, depending on how aggressive you want to be about moving students around or how tolerant you are of moving students over distances. And it seems like, and we'll talk more about this later, but it seems to me at least like Wake County was fairly open to moving people around to achieve their desired results. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think extremely so. So the earliest student assignment policies in the mid 80s have this thing called a 1545 rule where they're going to try not to have fewer than 15% or more than 45% of their schools be, uh, at the time it was black, because we talk about black-white segregation for historical reasons. But so they had this idea where the guidelines for assigning students to schools, and again, there are schools that are less than 15% and schools that are more than 45% black. But the idea is we're not going to, we're going to try really hard not to do this explicitly in policy. And speaking of those rules, let's try to define desegregation clearly in the context of the policy you're studying and in the context of your research article. What exactly are, are we talking about here? Is it, is it just race? Is it also socioeconomic status? Is there a dimension of like prior achievement or uh, ability? I know there's a lot of, when people talk about segregated classrooms or segregated schools, there's a lot of different things they could mean. Well, in Wake, the policy is talking about kind of between school segregation, what school doors different students go through, and less so about um, within school segregation, again, at policy level. And they're talking about race? It's quite race-based from 82 to 99, and then Charlotte gets unitary status. And in a theme here, Wake County does not want to go to court over this. And so they changed their policy instead of being about race. They changed it to be, we're not going to pack our schools full of low SES students or students who have low prior achievement. Again, same similar type guidelines, but we're going to do this not on the basis of race. And it turns out they're in good stead because in this time period, we have like parents involved yet decided. So, And SES means what? In this case, the 
accepted educational definition of SES pay, the thing we can't count right, the number of FRL kids. So SES is an acronym for socioeconomic status. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And then how are we measuring, how are you conceptualizing socioeconomic status? In this case, it's just the easiest thing to count, which is uh, free or reduced price lunch eligibility. So we don't actually know like household income or, or parents' education or, or something like that. We're we're using a simple marker of, is the student eligible for free or reduced price lunch? I think Wake was more or less trying to, to work around increasing ju- uh, judicial pressure uh, around racial desegregation plans um, by finding ways to create racially diverse schools without targeting race. And so they saw they saw poverty as, as the way to do that. So they're moving kids from low poverty schools to high poverty schools and kids from high poverty schools to low poverty schools. And that's, of course, correlated with race, but correlated enough that reducing socioeconomic segregation is also going to reduce racial segregation. I hope I'm not stealing thunder from Jay here, but uh, in an earlier paper, the paper that sort of led into this, this study, our co-authors Devin and Andrew uh, and others, show that, that yes, uh, it, particularly the socioeconomic reassignment was able to um, break up highly um, racially homogenous schools. So in the middle, it may not have made a lot of difference in terms of racial composition. They were moving kids around without making a lot of a difference in terms of school racial composition um, in the middle of the distribution. But they were definitely uh, ensuring that there were predominantly overwhelmingly um, black and Hispanic or no predominantly overwhelmingly white schools. And then for the policy itself, what exactly was Wake County doing? What did the policy actually do? As mechanically, student assignment in Wake County goes like, Kind of like so, everyone's assigned to a school on the basis of address. Although in a lot of places these school attendance zones are like contiguous, uh, in Wake County they're not necessarily. And then if families want, they can kind of apply to magnet schools or schools that have a different calendar there than their base school, so year-round schools and traditional schools. So if you're assigned to a traditional school and you want to go year-round, you can apply to those year-round schools and vice versa. You kind of have these intra-district school choice options that are accessible via lottery for available seats. So we're talking about when you're reassigned, your base, your address-based school assignment changes, and then you can, I don't call it escaping. And it changes in a way chosen by the county to, to reallocate who's going to what school. That like That's what the policy strategically chose. And then parents had some some amount of agency over whether they followed that assignment. They always had choice, and they didn't have different choices. They had the same choices um, as if they were if they were reassigned. And one little one little detail about about that that I think is important about the context is Wake was again it was fairly brave in the sense that they reassigned kids from high poverty schools and from low poverty schools. So a lot of desegregation plans involved busing black kids to lighter schools, right? Um, and no, with little movement in the other direction. And there was, and it's certainly true that if you were black or Hispanic, you were more likely to be reassigned than if you were white and white county. Um, but there was a pretty substantial degree of desegregation in all directions. And if a family really wanted to avoid their reassigned school at their neighborhood school, were charter schools or private schools a, a serious option at this time in Wake County? Yeah, so not charters as much. There are basically, there are very, very few charters in Wake County. There's like a hundred charter school cap in North Carolina, and most of them were in other parts of the state until 2011. 
Okay, so charter schools were not a big... It's not a realistic out. Private schools are in play, so that's kind of part of the policymaker concern, right? And it's kind of why magnets are so effective, is you bring that part of the school choice process into the district, as opposed to, you know, go over and tell you or exit the traditional public school system altogether. You kind of give the parents agency within this controlled choice. Anecdotally, uh, do we know, like, did a lot of families move to private schools uh, in response to this policy? Or We did some analysis. What we, what we could do is, so not answering anecdotally, but answering as best we could from our data, we could see when people are treated. When they, when they, we, our data covered everybody who was enrolled in the Lake County School, and we could look at attrition. And attrition is very rare, and but somewhat more rare if you were, or somewhat more common if you were reassigned. So your chances of leaving the district um, bumped up by by a couple percentage points if you were reassigned. So maybe like a handful of families did use the private school out, but by and large they didn't. Is that? Interesting. What about the the timing of the policy? I know we we talked about the history of this going back 50 or 60 years. You're studying a very specific policy. When was that policy enacted? And then what years of data are you looking at in your study? Yeah, so they changed the race-based policy to an SES-based policy in the beginning in the 2000-2001 school year. So that's where we pick up. And then the last year of this is 2009, 2010. So we have those 10 years in our study. So that's interesting to me because it also, that timing also overlaps with another big education policy, both at the federal and state level. This was right at the height of the accountability era, thinking like no child left behind. And I know North Carolina had some, uh, had a a strong state level test-based accountability policy. Did that affect policymakers or, or school leaders thinking about how this reassignment policy might interfere with or affect their test-based accountability outcomes? A good question, not one that we really thought about a lot, because we, t- we thought about the accountability context as sort of the error in which the policy, you know, it, was a, it was a somewhat constant policy context in which the rest of the policy un- un- unfolded. We sort of bracketed it, didn't think about it a whole lot. That's just part of the context that this was enacted in. Okay. So I at least have a pretty good understanding of the of the background now let's dive in a little bit deeper to the results themselves the first question i always think about in a when studying a policy like this is what researchers might call the first stage in other words in a literal sense did the policy do what it was supposed to do in terms of changing the composition of schools that students attended. So forget the student outcomes for a second, like the test scores. And I'm just curious, you know, did this equalize or desegregate schools? It's an interesting question. So I think the policy is definitely checking this more intense segregation that would have happened were it not in place. Dad talked about Devin and and his co-author's paper in 2019 that shows pretty well in this time frame that if the school district had done nothing, their schools become more segregated. And so I think it's easier to think about this policy, for me at least, as a don't segregate more policy, rather as like an active desegregation policy. And you can kind of see in Charlotte Mecklenburg that gets unitary status in 99. I think Shanika Williams and Eric Howe have a great paper that kind of has this figure that shows the segregation indices of both places side by side. And Charlotte Mecklenburg resegregates very quickly. And even when Wake loses, essentially loses the race lever to pull, their like, average segregation doesn't change very much. And then we have Devin's paper that says, also, we squished the distribution. We cut off the tails of the distribution where we don't have intensely very, very white, very variable X schools. 
another way of conceptualizing the first stage, which is just did, did people go to the schools that they were assigned to? And so we, could, we I think that's worth asking about now. And so because they always had choices, you know, about a third of Wake County um, students um, were attending magnet schools or calendar options. They were doing something other than their, their base school. But reassignment um, didn't change that a whole lot. So about about 70% of kids who are reassigned pick up. Reassignment actually, let me say it just slightly differently because it matters in, like, kind of deep in the weeds. Reassignment increased a kid's chances of changing schools by about 70 percentage points. So it, it did bump kids into new schools. When people got reassigned, they would, they would, go to, they would typically follow the reassignment and go to the new school. And that reassignment would generally put them into a more diverse school. So that's the mechanism that, that made the, the, the policy as, as effective as it was for maintaining a desegregated school system. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. It's like, did the students respond to the change in assignment? Now, were you able to look at the schools themselves in terms of like the racial composition or the the percent poverty or things like that and how the school makeup changed as a result of the policy? I mean, it must have in some sense if, if the students are changing. Yeah, so they do. And the other thing I think that's uh, context here is Wake County gets way bigger. And so there's sending school students from a school they were already into another school that already existed. But I think Wake County grows by 45-ish thousand students. And they opened 44 schools in these 10 years. I mean, Wake County grew by the fifth largest. Like, they added the fifth largest school district to the largest school district in the state. Um, just in terms of scale. And so a lot of this is just you have this opportunity. Uh, you can kind of think about it as redistricting every year, honestly. Redistricting a small number of students into either new schools or different schools to try and keep uh, things from segregating. So, yeah, schools do change. And the major, I'd say, a big deal is there are just a bunch more schools that didn't exist at the beginning of the time frame that do at the end. And they change for the better in terms of being more diverse and less segregated. And the other side of it is that they also... The policy helped to relieve crowding at, at schools and places where population was growing quickly. Well, I know. I mean, North Carolina as a state was growing in terms of population very fast throughout this time, and and Wake County in particular, for sure. And I, I have a question about that. I want to circle back to. So, like, the policy did what it was supposed to do. It changed students' assignments. It made schools more diverse, and for the most part, most students followed the reassignment that the policy created. This wasn't just for the sake of changing the school composition, though. This was, you know, hopefully going to improve student outcomes. Did it? What do we see in terms of of student outcomes that are affected by this policy change? So we have this um, a small positive effect on mathematics achievement for reassigned students vis-a-vis their non-reassigned peers. Um, null effects on reading achievement, chronic absenteeism, and suspensions. Kind of if you want to squint at the suspension chart, you can see some small protective effects and there are stars in the table, but it's pretty small effect and I'm happy enough to leave it at no harm done. Although I'll point out that a small decrease in suspensions, which is an extremely rare outcome to begin with, is not always small, quote, quote, small. And when you say stars in the chart, you mean they're statistically significant? Yeah, statistically significant. Although this is a little bit trivial because, you know, like, 1.2 million student year observations or something. Uh, you start to get statistical significance pretty quickly. Still, I think most parents and principals would, would say any reduction in, in suspensions is a good thing. And it's definitely not more. You know, we have a very precisely estimated not more. 
And then in terms of the increase in math scores, is that like a big effect? How do we think about the size of, of that achievement gain? 0.05 standard deviations, I think, after three years. So by most metrics, that I wouldn't call it a big effect. It's pretty small. We trace that effect out three years from reassignment, and it is getting bigger uh, over time. It's a real and sustained little boost. But I always, I always get nervous when you're trying to benchmark these achievement effects on years of growth or so on, because there's so many assumptions there. But it's what 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 would I say? It, it's not nothing. <laughs> you know, it's it's small. It's it's not nothing, and it, and it accumulates over time. Is there another intervention with a similar effect size that you feel comfortable comparing it to, just to to give people a sense of like what this is doing relative to say class size reductions or like having a really effective so class size reduction? I mean, I'm I'm doing this a little bit from memory, but class size reduction I think of as being like a 0.15 standard deviation. So it's a third of that. You know, for a very low cost intervention um, that really is serving, uh, is really not built as an intervention in educational outcomes. It's really serving broader social goals. I think, um, you know, it's not nothing, is what I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Now, the other question, of course, with any study like this is how do we know that these are the actual causal effects of the policy change? And not just the result of some other underlying difference between schools or between neighborhoods. How do you try to tease out the causal effect of this policy change? This is the question the reviewers wanted to ask, too. And so to answer that question, it takes, requires us to go a little bit deeper into the mechanics of school assignment at Wake. So Jay was telling you about how your neighborhood has a base school. In order to do that, mechanically to make that happen, Wake County take up, takes a map of the county and they split the county up into 1,500 residential nodes. So these are little, very socially, um, socioeconomically, but also racially homogenous geographic units. And each school is associated with some number of nodes. And so when a student is reassigned, what really happens is that student's node, so that student and a few dozen of their neighbors, are told that their base school was once school A, it's now school B. So our whole analysis is built on a sort of with, within node, it's a node fixed effect, a within node view. So we're asking, how do outcomes change for students in the nodes that are reassigned in the years before and after their, their school assignment changes? And then how does that com compare to changes for students in uh, nodes that were never reassigned. If you see no changes in outcomes in the years leading up to reassignment, but then changes in outcomes, unique changes in outcomes uh, for the nodes that were reassigned in the years after reassignment, we've got strong evidence of an effective reassignment. And that's exactly what we find. So you call it an event study in the paper. So you're basically just saying, you know, for the people in that node, in that little neighborhood, they're faced with this shock of changing the assigned school and then you look is there a change in in outcomes that aligns with that shock with that change in school and then assuming that the only shock that hit that node that hit that neighborhood at that time was the school change well then it, i think it's very plausible to attribute any test score changes to that policy exactly and another way to, to describe that assumption is to assume that the reassignment decision is happening more or less at random, like when and where reassignment is happening uh, is occurring more or less at random. 
I think that's very compelling, and I, I think you you and your team do a great job of, of sh- making that argument and, and showing why it's compelling in the paper. Some of our listeners might think this sounds similar to the difference in difference designs that some of the other uh, episodes have, have focused on, and that's exactly right. I think the event study is just sort of spreading the difference in difference comparison out across multiple time periods. So it's compelling research design, I found it pretty credible. I think it's definitely a, there's something here. This is an effect of the policy. Um, the other complication that I think Jay was was talking about a little bit was Wake County was growing really fast around this time. And all I could think about when, when I was reading your paper was, on the one hand, this is such a politically contentious policy. There's going to be a lot of backlash. Maybe some families don't want this. But at the same time, there's also new families entering the school district all the time just because of the population growth. And I feel like that makes it easier politically for this sort of policy to work because you always have new families and new students entering the district. So there's always going to be some reshuffling. Is that, am I right in thinking that that helped make this more palatable? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, kind of growth presented a lot of opportunities to think about your school demographics. And if you're going to open 40 some schools, like somebody's got to go. And so maybe you can say, all right, I'm not going to move families in such a way that will segregate my, well, this, the opening of the school will cause an issue for the rest of my schools. You kind of think of it in systems, in a systems way. And so you don't have to map, okay, so I was going to say, you don't have to map your residential segregation as in real time onto your schools. You can do something else. I agree with that. I think that there's, the politics do have another, the, the politics around growth have, have another side. And that is a lot of the growth in the county was pretty affluent. It was in, in pretty affluent suburbs. So these people who cared a lot about their kids' education and who had a lot of political power um, who were coming into the county also felt like, wait a second, I bought a house in this neighborhood because I thought we were going to go to the school, and now I don't have any idea. I've got this great amount of uncertainty about where my kid is going to go. I think both the, the, the growth enabled the plan, but it also kind of contributed to, to frustration and broadened the frustration, I think, in, in the community over time. Well, I, I think that's related to another question, I, I guess, a comment, is that I was pretty surprised, actually, if I read your paper correctly, that it seems like that these effects are fairly similar for all types of students. And I was surprised by that because I would have thought that that the biggest gains would have been felt by maybe the most disadvantaged students or something like that. Did I interpret that right? And, and was that surprising to you as well? Yeah, the results are pretty similar across different student groups and school types. Uh, there's some evidence that the results are a bit more positive for reassigned kids from lower achieving and higher poverty schools. And without any kind of offsetting, you know, negative results for students from higher achieving and lower poverty schools. But yeah, we were pretty surprised by the consistency of the results, too. I mean, there's not really a big differential. Do you have any any insights into why or is it? It's a good question. You know, I've found as you kind of travel around in educational policy circles that every district is its own country. Very different cultures and very different like uh, senses of their power. uh, What's district power? What's school power? Wake County is a very centralized district. It had this history around desegregation, which led it to send resources fairly evenly. It led it to run a relatively centralized staffing system, not perfectly centralized, but a relatively centralized staffing system, and certainly not perfectly uh, equal resources across the district, but relatively. 
So I think a piece of it was nobody was being reassigned from a good school to a bad school. Um, people were being assigned to, from schools in one neighborhood to another neighborhood, schools with different demographic characteristics. But the district, I think, was just well-run and rel- relatively equitably run throughout the period. So the other big, I guess, elephant in the room here with any sort of desegregation policy is about the non-movers. And I guess we think about the non-movers as two groups. There's what I would think of as the left-behind students who stay in the same school and sort of lose some of their classmates to reassignments. And then there's also the incumbents in the receiving schools, meaning they're students who don't get changed, but then their school has an influx of new students. And I think a lot of the resistance to desegregation policies is due to the the families of those non-mover students. And then they're going to be worried about, well, is this influx of, of new kids from a different neighborhood going to disrupt my child's education? Can you speak to that concern at all? And, and are you able to even sort of loosely look at whether that was a, a problem here? That question is an important question. It wasn't central to the way we designed our study. Um, and so it was kind of peripheral. So I'd say our answer is a little tentative, but what we find is some evidence to suggest that achievement improves as the proportion of students who are reassigned reassigned into a kid's school rises. So this is the kids who get new classmates. Getting new classmates is associated with an improvement in achievement, and losing classmates to reassignment is associated with a decline in achievement. But because the county ran reassignment in such a way that they were often students were being reassigned into and out of the same school. Those, for many students, felt both sides of that effect. So I think on in the aggregate, it's pretty much a wash um, for the students left behind. And I'm not super confident that those two independent effects really stand up as separate effects. I'd say that the, the findings are, are, are consistent, though, with other work on, on changes in peer. There's work in, in Boston around the Metco busing um, that has consistent results. Uh, similar things that having getting new students and new, new diverse classmates typically has no effect for incumbent students. And it's certainly not like a dramatic end of the world effect for those. I think that's a really important point to make here because if that's the big argument against doing this, it, it seems like it's something of a flawed argument or a uh, overstated fear? Or... I think the two fears that motivate opposition to, to desegregation, the two polite, <laughs> not racist fears, I guess, that motivate opposition um, to desegregation policies and involve yeah, the, the, the consequences for incumbent students, the sort of churn that happens in a school. And then the second is the, the, the one that we speak to most directly, which is the effect on the kids who are asked to move, who get on the bus. And, and they're, they're, that concern, you know, is goes deep into the into the uh, judicial history around 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 desegregation. And so, on the one hand, I'm sort of surprised that this even happened in North Carolina. Although I don't know much about, I'm not an expert in North Carolina politics. I was a little surprised that that this policy happened that and was successful and lasted for so long. Although I also understand that eventually the policy did go away and eventually the opposition sort of won out and removed the policy. What led to its demise ultimately? There's an interesting empirical question um, to be answered about what led to its demise. I'd say that one take is that reassignment, uh, that, that people had a growing frustration 
um, with reassignment. The reassignment felt like it was sort of taking kids out of their neighborhoods. It was breaking social capital bonds. And so that there was this accumulating frustration that came out of reassignment itself. On the other hand, it was so what happened, the, the policy came to an end in 2010 when a slate of um, candidates ran for the school board together in opposition to the plan. And I think it's important to, to, I think that year, 2010, is a big, is an important year to sort of pause on and think about. You know, it's the rise of the Tea Party. It's a, the middle of an of a Obama-era right-wing backlash. Um, so whether the end of Wake County's uh, reassignment plan is was sort of cooked into, into reassignment itself, or whether it was a victim of, you know, just the political winds, and um, uh, is, 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 hard, is, is hard to know. The school board elections in 2009 and is extremely well funded in a way that school board elections had not been. It was, you could probably think about it as a test case for can you put money into local places and make change? And the answer was yes. Do you think the money came from outside of Wake County? It wouldn't have to around here. So the Koch brothers are from North Carolina. So it was extremely well funded coordinated opposition. That seems like a bigger trend. I mean, even today, I think local elections are getting more and more money locally and from from bigger donors uh, out of town. So what advice then would you offer to state officials or county officials or school districts that want to implement this sort of policy? The key thing that comes out of the study is you can do this and you can do this without hurting kids. So the politics are the politics, but if you're convinced that running diverse schools is the right thing to do, you can do it. And you sort of need to take a deep breath and be brave and figure out how to do it. I say that Wake did it in a really smart way in the sense that it kept some controlled choice as a part of the plan. And it used choice, at least it tried to use choice as a part of the, of, of the, as an additional desegregating mechanism. So that it wasn't just a heavy handed effort of moving kids from one place to another. It was also, it was working in a, it was building a system um, that was equitable across the board, that had options that were all diverse options. And, but then also gave families these nudges to, to more diverse schools um, via reassignment. So that's a, it, it was a sort of, it was a, it was a light touch. I think that, that also makes sense. So be brave, but also be strategic. And you mentioned like if a jurisdiction wants to do this. So I, I just want to talk a little bit more about like why would district or county or state want to do this? We talked about, you know, your study shows that nobody's harmed. And, and if anything, there's some modest gains in terms of achievement and fewer suspensions and so on. But for me, at least, and, and I, I feel like maybe for, for your team as well, it feels like there's also much, much bigger, but much harder to measure social benefits of engineering more diverse schools and, and reducing segregation. And I agree, you know, I, I believe that. I think there are a, a lot of sort of social attitudes that are going to be improved by kids being exposed to a more diverse set of, of peers, diverse in terms of demographics, socioeconomic background, et cetera. But I'm curious to hear what, how do you and Jay uh, think about that? I think this, answering this question makes me a little nervous because it asks us to take kind of take off the green eye shade and talk about politics and sort of philosophical commitments uh, rather than data. But 
I think schools are places where we learn how to live and work together. Schools are places where we, we, we build our social networks. And so I think, and I think that the social science research um, backs us up on this, that kids who attend more diverse schools learn a set of skills and dispositions that will help them thrive in diverse environments throughout their entire lives. And so... I mean, they're going to graduate to work in a diverse labor market. This is something that's, you know, if we are going to maintain a democracy that is pluralistic in really meaningful ways, I think it's incumbent upon us to build learning environments uh, for young people where they can learn to thrive in, in, around people who are, who are not like them in, in lots of different ways. I think if we can do that uh, while serving, you know, sort of core academic goals, that's all the better. So... This was really a fascinating discussion, and I, I think we covered a lot. We covered the history of North Carolina, history of desegregation, your very careful study. Again, congratulations on the on the very well-deserved award. I think this is a fantastic paper. That's exactly the, the type of paper that, that this award was created to, to recognize. Is there one final takeaway that, that either of you would like to leave our listeners with? I'm, no, thank you. I mean, thank you for the kind words. And to me, Publishing in Japan is, you know, it's a sort of bucket list thing to do. And so to win the award is really, it's just a huge honor. And so I'm really complimented. I think this is a it, kind of an idiosyncratic study in the sense that it's so deeply rooted to a partnership with the district and to this one particular case. It was a struggle to tell a story, you know, because to understand the paper really required understanding. Desegregation is like this um, in the sense that Every city has its own school segregation and desegregation story. They're different from one another. Uh, and so we really had to go deep into Wake County, um, both in terms of building connections in the district and accumulating data, um, but also in terms of ex understanding and explaining how this policy worked. And I think that that's like, I, you know, it's a huge honor to get this award, but it's particularly exciting to see like that kind of research recognized because that kind of research then in turn like can lead back into the prisoner making pro pro uh, processes and, and policy making in the local context so you know it's exciting for me to feel like this this work has um, lessons that are generalizable but also lessons that are directly relevant to policy and practice uh, here in north carolina usually you have to trade those off but in this case you really didn't end up having to and some of that was just a lot of being really careful with telling the story how it happened so that people who are here trust that you've done the work and you understand. And then I'm going back to the brass tacks in terms of model making and making sure that we're sure we have the right answer. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there with trust. These research practitioner partnerships only work when there's trust and that trust has to go both ways. The, the district has to trust you all the, the researchers have to trust the district. And um, I think you guys are a great, you know, this project is a great sort of role model example of, of how to have a successful partnership like that. So with that, I will sign off. Our guests today have been Thad Domina and Jay Carter, both of UNC Chapel Hill. Their paper entitled The Kids on the Bus, The Academic Consequences of Diversity-Driven School Reassignments is now available in JPAM. And I will try to get links up to the other articles that we mentioned on the Closer Look podcast website. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson, signing off. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.